Uh, Cheers. Well, we're going to continue uh, our sermon series in James. Uh, Almost half of you weren't here for the last part of the sermon series. Uh, Those who were here will have uh, very little recollection of it, but we are up to chapter 3. So if you can open up to James chapter 3, I'm going to pray and we'll read God's Word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy and privilege that it is to meet together like this today. Uh, Father, as we're gathered here, um, we're conscious of so many other things going on at the moment. Uh, There are thoughts and concerns pressing in on us from all kinds of directions. There are distractions, uh, and we pray, Father, that you would take those things from our minds. We pray that you'd quieten our hearts, open our our ears, that we might hear you speak through your living, active word. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. James writes, uh, chapter 3, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example, although they're so large and are driven by strong winds... They're steered by very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth can come praising and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grape vine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Have you ever felt the attraction of silence? If you're married and you're ever asked on an occasion, do these jeans make my backside look fat? There is no correct answer, and silence is golden. Silence has a, has a great attraction to it, doesn't it? Better to be silent and thought a fool, a fool, Abraham Lincoln said, than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And given the clutter and noise that's all about us, a bit of silence is a nice idea, isn't it? And around the world at the moment, there's a rise in kind of mystical versions of, uh, of Christianity which, which favour silence and mystery and, and decry the idea that we ought to care about words and what is said. 
But there's something deeply uncomfortable about silence as well, isn't there? I mean, the, we're not made to be quiet. It's unnatural for us. And it's unnatural for us because we're created by and for a speaking God. In fact, we know and serve God because he has spoken. He created the world by speaking. He's created a relationship with us by speaking. He sent his son, uh, the incarnate word, into the world. He's left us with a gospel to go and speak. Speaking's a good and godly thing, but it's something that James said uh, right at the start of his letter in chapter 1, or chapter 1, verse 19... It's something that he is concerned about and his concern sharpens here in chapter 3. In chapter 1 he said everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. And uh, you might remember as we looked at that passage we saw the primary reference there is being quick to listen to God, to listen to his word and the rest of the chapter spelled out what it would mean to really listen to and humbly accept God's word. And it'd be tempting to think here in chapter 3 we've moved on to a very different thing. But I think we're still paddling in the same pool. We're still talking about the same uh, kinds of problems. And here in the first half of the chapter, it's clearly about the tongue, the use of the tongue, the way we speak. But as well as being a word to individuals, it's a word that has implications for churches, for Christian communities and most especially for the way that we speak God's word within those communities. And in fact, as the chapter rolls on and we roll into chapter 4, we'll see that the life of the Christian congregation, the church, is actually what's on view there. Uh, You look at the link in uh, verses 1 and 2 here, where James addresses those who do most of the speaking in churches. Not many of you, he writes, should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So it's part of God's good provision for us, the leadership that he provides for his people, for his church, is through teachers who speak his word. But because the role of the Christian teacher then is so important in God's plans, there are grave warnings for anybody who will take on this role. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever things go wrong, it is the leaders, the teachers of Israel, who are first held to account. In the Gospels, Jesus' harshest words are for the teachers of Israel uh, who are leading people astray. There's a responsibility and accountability that comes with teaching uh, that is profound and is worrying. So here in James 3, 1, we have a word for every preacher, for every teacher, every Bible study leader, every person who teaches the Bible one-to-one, any parent who teaches the Bible, anyone who teaches. We will be judged more strictly. Not that teachers will be punished more severely, but that their words and actions will be scrutinised more closely because a lot hangs on the words of teachers. Do you feel the weight of that? 
Just feel the liberation of verse 2, though. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Is that, is that encouraging to you? Well, it should be, because it says right here, you're not expected to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. We all stumble in many ways. Are you aware of your stumblings, of your mistakes, of your misspoken words? I'm aware of mine. And if you're aware of them, be encouraged. You're not expected to be perfect. Maybe judge more strictly, but remember from chapter 2 that mercy triumphs over judgment. We relate to God through His mercy. Uh, God is not expecting you as a teacher to be perfect. Well, that should be encouraging, but if that's true, then as one of your teachers, there's something else you ought to expect from me, isn't there? If I know and you know that I'm not perfect, and I know and you know that I'm going to make mistakes, you ought to expect to be hearing me apologise regularly, shouldn't you? Isn't that one of the natural flow-ons? If we all make mistakes we recognise our mistakes, that's actually the pattern of Christian teaching. It's not that we expect perfection. Now, I'm sure there's other occasions when I'm not even aware of the mistakes I've, I've made and I need those to be pointed out to me. What a loving thing that is to do for somebody. But sometimes when I am aware of my mistakes, I lack the courage to do the right thing and admit them and apologise for them. And I want to say as you pray for me, can you pray for me in this especially? No point praying that I'd be perfect, don't worry about that. Pray that I'd apologise. That I'd have the courage to admit my fault. And as you're busy praying that for me, and I'll be praying that for myself, it'd be a good idea to pray for yourself too, wouldn't it? Not that you'd be perfect, but that you'd be repentant. It'd be a great prayer for us to get into the habit of praying for one another and for ourselves. And we see why, as, as James unpacks um, what happens with the tongue in the body. Uh, verse 3, whenever we put the bits uh, in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Ships, as an example, they're large, driven by strong winds, steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue's a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Apparently, the human tongue weighs about 0.4 of a percent of your body weight, and yet it is disproportionately responsible for the amount of trouble that you're going to get into. <laughs> That's the nature of the tongue, okay? Uh, it is for you, it is for me, and that's why James uses the pictures uh, that he uses here. They're, they're pictures of small things that have a big influence and make a big difference. Uh, the bit in the mouth of the horse, the rudder of the ship, the spark that starts a fire, they're, they're all small. But do you notice the progression in the images? Oh, I don't know how many of you have ridden horses, but you put a bit in the mouth of a horse, you can, you, you can control that fairly easily. Oh, I don't know how many of you like sailing, but out in the open sea, you sail a small rudder, 
it works most of the time, that, that works. A bit more risk, but most of the time it works. But a spark that lights a forest fire is out of control. And there's a progression in those images. Um, the fire is almost impossible to stop and James goes on to say, and the tongue's most like that. Verse 6, it's destructive like the fire, corrupting the whole body, even uh, sealing eternal destinies. In verse 8, the tongue is full of deadly poison, deadly to others because of the things we say, but deadly to ourselves as well. When I was growing up, the kids in the playground used to, you know, uh, sing that little ditty, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words can never hurt me. That's a lovely little ditty, but it's rubbish, isn't it? Because broken bones heal, but the damage caused by careless words can often last a lifetime. That's what's at stake with the words that we use. The words blurted out in anger or frustration, the rumours started in ignorance or malice, the unkind words said in jealousy or a desire to peg somebody else back. Whenever we gossip or gripe or talk about people behind, behind their backs, we've got to recognise at that point that the evil one is delighted. That he loves to pull down God's people by using particularly leaders, but anyone in the community to use their tongues like that, to speak like that. What destruction is wrought on the body of God by the words spoken carelessly in malice, in ignorance? What destructive potential the tongue has? Do you see in verse 7, the thing about the tongue, I've, I've seen dog tamers, I've seen bird tamers, I've seen horse tamers seen dolphin tamers, I've seen seal tamers, I've even seen a lion tamer, but I've never yet met a tongue tamer. Because no human being can tame the tongue. So not only does the tongue have this destructive potential, but no one can control it. Better to remain silent, wouldn't you say? Given the risk, wouldn't it be better to say nothing than to start a fire? Well, that might be true, except that that's not all there is to say about the tongue. The tongue has this awesome positive potential as well. Have a look from verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come both praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. See, of all the things we could potentially say, the two extremes are this. On the one hand, we could curse other people. We could look at another person who's been made in the image of God and decry, devalue and even wish eternal destruction on them with our tongues. But at the other extreme, we have the potential to praise the awesome Creator God, the loving Heavenly Father, to commend Him to others, to declare how good He is. That's what it means to praise God, isn't it? As we 
talk with our friends as, as we meet with others, we have the potential to, to speak of the excellencies of God, to rehearse them in front of other people, to lift his name with our words. And Jane points out that contradiction here. That it should startle us, shouldn't it? Out of the same mouth, both of those things can come. That should startle us. He says it shouldn't be. This shouldn't be. Praising God and cursing others is incompatible. They shouldn't exist together, let alone come out of the same mouth. If, a fresh, if fresh water and salt water runs together, what do you get? Salt water. doesn't matter what the combination, you get salt water. A tree always bears the kind of fruit that the tree is. A salt spring always produces salt water. If you want fresh water, you need a fresh water spring. And what we need to do then is to attend to the spring, to the heart out from which we speak. When a doctor sticks a thermometer into your mouth, he's not measuring the temperature of your mouth, is he? He's trying to measure your body's temperature. He's trying to make a judgment about the health of your whole body and he can do that by your, by your mouth. And Jesus said much the same thing, that out of, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of the mouth is an indicator of what's going on in the heart, in the whole body, the health of the whole body. And our words have this diagnostic capacity. But in order to change the words... We need to change the spring. We need to change the heart from with, uh, out of which the words come. You can pretend for a while, you can put a lot of effort into you know, stopping swearing for a bit or something like that, stopping yourselves from telling lies, and that'll work for a while, but if all you're doing is fighting against your own desires and inclinations and trying to put on the right kind of show, you'll be found out in the end because the spring, the heart, has not changed. No human being can tame the tongue, James wrote, and I believe. No human can do it. But God can. God has demonstrated that he can do it in Jesus. If anyone's never at fault in what he says, James said he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. And yes, we know of one. We know of one. As Peter wrote, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. You see, we cannot tame the tongue, but God can. Jesus did. And as we strive to follow his example, that's great, but in the end... We need to rest in his perfection because unlike him, we will continue to stumble in many ways. God can tame the tongue and he will change us. Oh, but I wish I could tell you it was just going to work like that. God's changing of us very rarely just works like that. It's often a slow work that takes effort and there are inching, growing signs of maturity as the years roll on. 
I worked uh, on construction sites, driving trucks, was in the police, uh, hung around with criminals as part of my work. Uh, <laughs> and then I came to college. And I think I've told a few of you this already, but I, I spent the first six months of college not wanting to say anything for fear of what would come out of my mouth because I swore like a sailor and I was, I was just so scared I was going to drop a clangor in class that I didn't say anything. It, it occurred to me, it was about 10 years ago, this realisation came to me that I don't struggle against swearing. And I can't tell you when that happened. And I'm not claiming any kind of particular kudos for that happening either because it was a slow work with lots of stumblings along the way, but that used to be the battle for me. That's not anymore. I've got others. Um, but that's the slow transforming work of God. I don't know what your battle with the tongue is. It might be that you're, you're easily drawn into gossip. Maybe you're in the habit of talking about people behind their backs or of being deceitful. Perhaps you speak uh, in a way that intimidates or belittles other people. I don't, I don't know what your particular... But we all stumble in many ways. How do we address our problems here? Because out of the mouths comes the overflow of the heart and because God is the only one that can tame the tongue and change the human heart. What are we... What's well, obvious, isn't it? Uh, what we do is we pray, don't we? Don't we rest in the one who has the power to change... Uh, this destructive tongue to quell that dangerous fire, we pray. And I want to encourage you, brothers, that in this area, as in so many, we need to pray specifically. Father, I am sorry for those things I said about Mary. I can see that my heart needs changing so that I will think of her as you do. Please change me and by your Spirit strengthen me to speak in a way that glorifies you. Or, Father, I'm just about to go and meet with Fred and I know that I'm going to be tempted to gossip with him just like I always am. Please take that temptation away from me and make it a bitter taste in my mouth. Help me to say positive things today. Or, Father, I've just realised that the way that I spoke to Joe before although it made me feel better about myself at the time, it put him down in front of other people. I like other people to think highly of me and I do actually look down on Joe. I'm sorry for both of those things. I am proud, make me humble. I'm selfish, give me a genuine love for others. It is God who can tame the, the tongue and I want to say to you that this needs to be a matter of concerted prayer and action on our part. The second thing that I think helps us to work positively on forming good habits here, the best habit of all, uh, is in intentionally leaning in to praising God. Uh, see, whatever you're doing that with your mouth, you're not doing something else. So I wonder how regular is your habit of out loud praising God? I'm not just 
mindless, uh, talking about mindlessly tacking the phrase praise God on the end of every sentence like a piece of punctuation. I know that happens. That's not what I'm saying. I, I'm saying, what about if we actually had the habit of genuinely praising God, of speaking of God for who he is and what he's done, of telling of, of his greatness, of giving him his due, of recognising his hand in the activities of the day, because God is in control of everything and every good thing we have comes from his hand. We have no shortage of opportunities to praise God, but are we in the habit of doing it? Do we do that with our mouths or are we silent at that point as well? And I want to say, after we realise who we are and who God is and we long for our hearts to be changed, what a great habit to get into to recognise the hand of God throughout our days, to recognise and speak the excellencies of God, to say them out loud, to fill our mouths with those words that other words have no space to creep in. Pray and praise God. Let me pray now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good, living and active word. And we thank you, Father, for uh, this warning, this reminder today about the power of our tongues for good and for evil. Lord, we pray that you would change our hearts, that each and every one of us would be so captured by your grace and goodness that out of that overflow, our mouths would speak your praises. And Father, we are sorry that we continue to stumble in so many ways and we pray that you would help us to be quick to repent and apologise. Father, we pray that our words might be characterised by the kind of grace that a knowledge of you instils. And Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.